Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. This year, in recognition of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, the Engendered Collective hosted a series of community conversations to bring greater awareness to domestic abuse and gender-based violence. Today's conversation deals with the intersection of domestic abuse and the church. Our guests included Deborah Wingfield and Julie Owens. So welcome, everybody. My name is Terry Yuan. I am the founder of an organization called the Engendered Collective, and you are here joining us for our last community conversation in recognition of Domestic Violence Awareness Month on the issue of domestic abuse and the church. We had originally three panelists scheduled, and unfortunately, one of them, Joy Forrest, is unable to join us because of uh, travel restrictions and changes. So not to worry. The two esteemed panelists that we have and I, I'm sure, are going to have a much deeper conversation. A little bit about today's agenda and the work that we do before we get started. The Engendered Collective is a community for survivors, advocates, and pro-feminist allies to come together in learning and advocacy and transformative change. The three pillars that we have in our theory of change includes uh, knowledge building and knowledge sharing, and the set of community conversations is part of that. We also have a weekly podcast called Engendered. We have a platform, a private platform for the community to come together and share information, ask questions, and provide assistance to one another in the work that we're all doing. Uh, The second pillar is collective care and healing. So we have a weekly survivor support group, and we do share a lot of resources on trauma so that the practitioners in the community can be trauma-informed. And the final pillar is advocating to end sexism and to increase accountability for abuse and abuse of power that's rooted in sexist oppression, exploitation, or violence. So domestic violence is one of them. So we have a working group exploring course of control and how we can build systems accountability on a primary, secondary, and tertiary level. So for today's conversation, we're going to be focusing mainly on the aspects of domestic abuse and Christianity, because one of our our panelists um, has that as her expertise. But I think also because U.S. culture and a lot of the um, forces that we're dealing with in this particular area stem a lot from the uh, Christian faith and intersect a lot with a lot of the social and political forces that are happening in our country. But by no means does our conversation only apply to Christianity. And we, to as much as extent as we can, we will be talking about these issues from an interfaith perspective. With that, let's get started. We have today two panelists, Deborah and Julie. Both have worked in the field of domestic abuse prevention for many decades. Deborah has uh, worked not just as um, a trainer, but also a speaker and an author. And she can talk about the, the books that she's written. 
And Julie uh, is a survivor and advocate, also and a trainer. So let's start with Deborah. Please, Deborah, let us know who you are and what you've done and um, what some of your accomplishments are, especially we'd love to hear the titles of your books. Oh, thank you, Terry, and thank you for inviting me to be on this panel. I've been working for over 45 years with abuse. I started out working with child abuse and then moved to working in the field of domestic abuse. And actually, kind of a combination of working with survivors and working with abusers. And out of that, developed a training program that I went around the state of Colorado. That's where I'm originally from. And did my training program. And that training program, I then moved to an online format. And so the online format is available at my website, houseofpeacepubs.com. And there are many different tracks that people can follow. We're currently doing a lot of training with advocates who want to be working with survivors, whether it's working with them before they end up in family court or while they're going through family court or even after they've been in family court and are trying to figure out how to clean up a mess that has happened because they didn't have an advocate to walk through that with them. And we really have found that when there's an advocate along, that that makes a big difference. So my whole career has been about helping people with abuse and recovering from abuse. That's amazing because I, I know that when I've been in family court, having a an advocate has been so important, but it's also hard to get someone who can really be there to support because a lot of the people who are there affiliated with the court don't feel comfortable being able to advocate. So the people that you've worked with, um, you know, kudos to you. And they're, they're lucky to have you, Deborah. Thank you. Um, okay, so Julie, you've been working in the field for over 30 years as an advocate trainer, and you're also a survivor. Tell us about you. And then we got to get back to Deborah for the titles of your books, okay? <laughs> okay. I, it's really a privilege to be here with you, Terry. Thank you. I just love you and Engendered. I think you're doing a incredible, amazing work, and I uh, love being here with you. And also with Deborah, my friend and colleague, we've done training together. Yeah, as Terry said, I am a survivor and I'm a, I'm a preacher's kid and I, I'm not really a kid anymore, but, you know, at heart. <laughs> and I uh, actually it wasn't until I was 32 years old that I got married and he ended up being an abuser, although I didn't see any red flags at all before we married. And he never physically hurt me during the marriage, but it was extreme course of control and psychological abuse. And uh, when I did end up filing for divorce, he ended up coming back and breaking into my parents' home and waiting to ambush me and my father. And his goal was to kill my father, cut his eyes out. We both got stabbed. It was very dramatic. My dad was a pastor of a very large Presbyterian church, first Presbyterian of Honolulu. I was in Hawaii, actually. We had come from Texas. And just make a long story short. So I ended up, I had an eight month old baby, ended up going through the whole criminal justice system. As you can imagine, the church didn't know how to help me. Everybody tried, but they didn't understand domestic violence and they weren't trained. Uh, and it wasn't until I got to a secular support group that I actually started learned about the power and control wheel and started to understand what had happened and put it all together. 
And from there, I went on to start to facilitate uh, support groups myself, co-facilitate and learn and be mentored by uh, a lot of advocates with a lot of experience and people in the field. And I did a lot of research, went back to college, studied violence against women on my own and ended up actually working at the National Center for PTSD doing uh, the first uh, controlled clinical trial of a trauma therapy for survivors of domestic violence and actually was a project director on two studies there. So I started a crisis team for uh, abused women that went into the emergency rooms. I trained uh, and certified all the advocates in the state. And I actually started an activist group of survivors. We did a lot of marching and protesting getting, we even got a judge kicked off the bench. I mean, we were radical. <laughs> I'm proud of those days. I wish I, you know, I wish we were still that radical, I guess. Um, but uh, I've learned a lot over the years and I've done a lot of different things, including uh, administering, overseeing programs uh, for the state and running transitional shelters to faith-based ones, working with women with substance abuse issues, trauma. So my main expertise is in best practices with victims and survivors and trauma and understanding them. I also do expert witness work in that area, although I'm phasing that out a little bit. So I've kind of done a whole lot of stuff and been very privileged to be in the field as long as I have. Well, you know, I think um, your experience when you were a survivor seeking help from your church and not getting it and having to go to a secular group is a very good segue into our conversation. So, you know, just for the the attendees who have not heard of Jess Hill, uh, we just released our, our re-interview with her yesterday. And if, uh, if there's any book that I recommend for anybody who hasn't read about domestic violence, I suggest that you buy her book. It is, I would, you know, call it the Bible of domestic violence now. Um, it's called See What You Made Me Do. And, you know, in it, Jess talks about the different typologies of abuse and how it makes it hard for not just victims, but everybody around them to understand abuse. And so to what extent, Julie, when you were experiencing it, did that lack of recognition and awareness impact you and your, you know, basically your delay in staying in the relationship, but also then the church's response? Well, you know, it's, uh, the abuse started literally on our wedding night, and we were married by a, a Presbyterian pastor in Texas. We, I went to see him. I talked to him about it. It was verbal and emotional abuse, you know, the, the usual um, accusations of infidelity, you know, uh, the name calling and that sort of thing. And, of course, it escalated very quickly. So sleep deprivation all isolation. I was teach. I was actually an interpreter for the deaf and I, I worked in special ed and he controlled everything. We lived out in the country. He would drive me to work, drop me off, pick me up, you know, take the spark plugs out of the car, all kinds of stuff. So um, the pastor couldn't help, didn't know how to help or what to do. So I ended up, I was, I got pregnant two weeks after the wedding, uh, tried to talk to my OBGN. She didn't know what to do. Ended up going to a uh, Al-Anon, because I thought, well, maybe it's because he used to really have a drinking problem. He was sober when we married. But anyway, all of those places just made it more complicated and didn't help at all. And it, it really wasn't until I did go to my support group after it, everything had happened. And 
I, my support group facilitator, who's still one of my best friends, Lana Neri, gave me a little book called Keeping the Faith by Reverend Marie Fortune, Questions and Answers for Abused Christian Women. And everything just dropped into place when she, when I read that, because she said, by divorcing, you're not, uh, you're not doing anything wrong. Uh, He, his abuse broke the marriage covenant. And you're just making public what has already been done. And I had a lot of, you know, questions about uh, forgiveness. You know, we're told to forgive seven times seven, 70 times seven and and marriages, you know, forever and so forth. So I, even though my family supported me 100%, whatever I wanted to do, they were behind me. I still, you know, needed these questions answered. And I went to see other pastors and they couldn't answer the questions. They they just tried to focus on the relationship. And even dad's associate pastor, David, my estranged husband, went to, he was arrested that night and he went to prison and he was on trial for attempted murder, kidnapping me, all kinds of stuff. And the associate pastor, my dad's, you know, the pastor who worked with my dad, he actually went to the prison and saw David. And I know he meant well, but he did all the wrong things because he would bring me letters from him. Uh, I was being stalked from prison, had to get a restraining order and the whole bit. And so, you know, pastors didn't know what to do. And sometimes they made it worse. So let me ask you, I, I'm not a Christian. And if if I had to call myself anything, it's spiritual. And, and so Christianity for me as a, a woman of color has a lot of connotations to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of them is is that there's very strong and strict enforcement of gender roles. So I would not expect that the church would be a place for people to go to to seek help because as what happened as you described just now, they would likely want to keep the couple together, if anything. Did they actually, when you explained that there was this issue, did they actually see it as a moral wrong or a failure on your ex-husband David's part? Or did they see that it was wrong? Let's start well, with that. You know, first of all, the thing about Christianity is it's it's not a, a homogenous thing. I mean, it, there's many different denominations. You know, you've got Protestant, you have Catholic, and then within the Pro- Protestantism, you have many different denominations. So I'm Presbyterian USA. It's one of the more, I, I don't know how, how you would define it, but we're not... F- focused on what you're not supposed to do, you know, don't do this, don't do that. You know, it's not real uh, fundamental. And it's not uh, one of those denominations where you can't get a divorce and so forth. So yeah, people were, you know, everybody said it's wrong what he's doing, but they didn't, they didn't know how to help me. I think the experience of many women, most of the ones I've worked with now over the decades, is they had really bad experiences in their churches because they were blamed. They were told uh, they couldn't leave. They were excommunicated or kicked out. If they left, they lost their children. You know, pastors would testify against them in family court and things like that. I mean, I was really lucky that my dad was the pastor. And I think that's the only reason it was so easy for me, you know, relatively speaking, is because they knew us and they knew that, you know, we were good people, that we hadn't done anything to bring this on. But I think the victim blaming is just so rampant in our culture. And it's no different in the church. And in those churches that are very fundamental, very rigid and dogmatic, and women are subservient and can't be pastors or preacher. And uh, 
a lot of times my experience is that the more they're like that, the more abusive, spiritually abusive they are when the victim tries to get help. So uh, we started an interfaith coalition against domestic violence. It's one of the first things that we did, brought Marie Fortune over to Hawaii to train pastors and uh, priests, Buddhist monks, you know, Catholic nuns. We had interfaith because I wanted everybody to get trained and to understand and for every victim to have somebody they could talk to. So that kind of a thing is very powerful and, and important. And our church developed a policy about domestic violence. And we were way ahead of the times, I'll tell you, though. This was like 1989. Uh, nowadays, a lot more churches are doing that kind of thing. But still, there's that struggle because when there's uh, really strong teaching around uh, the creation story that Eve was created to be a helpmate to Adam, which is all because of misinterpretation of the scripture. And when Ephesians, for example, wives submit to your husbands, that's cherry picked out and it's taken out of context and mutuality and partnership or thrown out the window and it's all about domination, then that's just, you know, makes it right for abuse. And to me, that's where the biggest problems are, is that we have inequality uh, and we don't uh, treat women as made equal to men functionally in the eyes of God, just spiritually, you know. So Deborah, let, let's turn to you. In terms of the work that you do, you, you take a secular uh, approach. Um, but, you know, in preparing for this conversation, I discovered, and I'm sure it's very familiar to both of you, the uh, spiritual and religious abuse wheel. And so I would love to have you kind of run through with us the ways in which an abuser might use religion to exert power and control? Well, that's a big question, Terry. Yeah. So <laughs> try to nail it down real quickly. If you look at the different spokes you on the By the way, you don't need to do it quickly. You could run us through it okay. <laughs> if you want. And I'm happy to, to, to you know, run through it with you if you need reminders. Uh, I'll read through all of them, and then you can talk, talk about them. So okay. on the wheel, there are... Um, seven different kinds of uh, control, uh, controlling behaviors. Um, so there's asserting authority, prolonging abuse through the use of religion, isolation, of course, we, we've very familiar with, coercion uh, through the community, blaming the victim, using children, and then sexual and reproductive coercion as well. So let's take them one at a time. I'm going to have you just cue me on each one there, too. Sure, sure. The first one is just asserting authority. One of the things that I see, and I work with many, many women who are coming out of Christian backgrounds of various denominations, as well as other denominations. And one of the things that I see is the man has been put biblically in her mind over her. And because he's over her, he can make decisions, he can tell her how to discipline the children. He can tell her how to clean the house. I've had women who, who said, my, my soon-to-be ex was complaining to the children because I drove to work by myself two days in a row, and therefore I must be doing something wrong. So it's little things that add up to big things. And one of the things that I've seen happen in court cases is these men will then assert themselves in court and say, 
well, one of us has to be the final decision maker on what happens because we don't always agree. So I think I should be given a court order that gives me permission to make the final decision. And how that then works out is she's never consulted about decisions. He just makes the decisions. And because it's already in a court order, that's a problem for her. So this actually speaks to what Julie was saying in terms of gender roles, which is a very prominent theme. I mean, obviously, it's not exclusive to Christianity. It's not exclusive to any religion, but it's certainly not exclusive to our culture. Um, It's just enhanced by the religious context, I'm guessing. And I know from my own background in Judaism that the more fundamental you go, the more orthodox you go, the more you're going to run into that kind of patriarchal attitude as well. So the next one was prolonging abuse using scripture tradition or cultural norms. It seems like, you know, if you just, if you're a, you know, like a strict uh, literal interpret, <laughs> interpret religious texts, literally, there's a lot, obviously, of sexism and misogyny and actually violence against women, violence in general <laughs> in these texts. So in some ways, it's kind of built in to normalize violence. And, 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 and in what ways have you seen in your work, Deborah, that that's been the case for the faith leaders who are working with these families? Well, the faith leaders tend to have this attitude that God hates divorce when they're missing the scripture. And I've learned this so much from Joy and from Julie. It's the scripture on oppression that they need to be paying attention to because God hates oppression And if oppression is occurring, then one of the things that the faith leaders have to look at is that's the issue that they have to consider. I want to turn to Julie for a second. This concept, and I never read the Bible, so I've only from popular culture kind of absorbed it, film, television, reading, etc. So when you have scripture, religious texts that juxtaposes both strict gender roles and inherent in them is a form of oppression, and yet they're also against oppression. Isn't that contradictory? Well, the problem is in how they're misinterpreted or mistranslated or both. So as you say, yes, there's lots of violence in the Bible, lots of violence against women in the Bible. But a lot of the texts which are used to try to subjugate women and put men in authority over women have been misinterpreted. Okay, I'm just going to make it as brief as I can. You know me, I'm a preacher's kid, I like to talk. But for instance, the, the verse in Malachi that Deborah just referenced, God hates divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Okay, that one is always weaponized against abused women who want to leave their husbands in the church, or I guess any woman who wants to leave a husband in the church in, a, in more conservative fundamental churches where divorce is not an option. And divorce is actually a sin and an offense against God and so forth and so on. That scripture uh, taken from way back in the days of, uh, of course, when Jewish men were taking foreign brides and they were dumping their Jewish wives and taking on foreign brides to make political alliances. And uh, this scripture spoke to men only because men were the only ones who could get a divorce because they owned their wives and their children. 
So God says, I hate divorce. Well, of course, God hates divorce because it is oppression. They were throwing these women out. They were making them homeless and destitute. They were keeping their children. They were vulnerable to violence and all kinds of things. They had no protection in society anymore. Of course, God hates it. The rest of that verse is, and covering oneself with violence. Nobody ever reads the rest of the verse. So divorce was a form of violence and abuse of women at the time. And God was saying, I hate what you are doing, you men, what you're doing to these to your wives. So, you know, it, the problem is not the scripture, it's how it's interpreted. Okay. Same thing in the creation story that's misinterpreted. Uh, you, you've heard a lot about helpmates lately, right? With the Supreme Court, you know, appointment, so forth and so on. The term helpmate is not even in the Bible. The creation story, God uh, created Adam and Eve was created as a help meet, M-E-E-T, not mate, meet for him, help, a help meet. And, and in the old English, that meant a help suitable for him. Has nothing to do with subservience. And the word help that is used in that scripture, azer, E-Z-E-R, is the same word used for God. So you know it's not subservient. God is my help in many other scriptures, Azer. So what has happened is because we live in a world that is saturated in patriarchy and misogyny, and a lot of it has is because religion has been weaponized against women, tr such long traditions and history and teaching, people don't even know what the Bible says anymore a lot of times. They they just they just regurgitate the stuff that they've heard preached and hammered on, you know, in some of these more dogmatic churches where, you know, the teaching uh, God is love and that Jesus came to set the press free is not the focus. The focus is on that you're going to go to hell if you don't do certain things. You know, it's gotten all lopsided. So. Even the scripture on uh, wives submit to your husbands, another one that gets cherry picked and taken out of context. The words, the Hebrew, the Greek in that New Testament is Greek words are misinterpreted because husbands are, are said to be the heads of their wives. The heads, this is, and that they, they are the covering of the wife. This is what's taught in fundamental church. And there's an illustration I wish I could share, which is umbrellas. And they even use this to teach. Here's the big umbrella is God. Then there's another umbrella, Jesus, as if there's some hierarchy in the Godhead, which is ridiculous anyway. Then, uh, then there's the husband. Then there's another umbrella under it is the wife. And there's another umbrella under it, which is the children. And this is supposedly biblical, but not. Because head, the word head, actually, kephale in the Greek, is means source. It means a lot of different things. But one of it is source, like the head of a river. So it has nothing to do with hierarchy, uh, authority, uh, and that kind of thing. And so in the scriptures that, say, that speak to husbands, they're not really focused on about husbands love your wives, do not be harsh with your wives, and so forth, you know, that... Uh, that your prayers won't be answered if you are, it, it, it even says so, but nobody talks about those scriptures. You know, it's just wives submit, wives submit, uh, God hates divorce. And so it's up to us to do our own research and our own study and find out what the scriptures really say. 
and to question some of this, some of these misteachings that have been used to control and intimidate and abuse women in the church. Thank you. Thank you for that. So let's go, let's turn back to Deborah, you know, in terms of going through some of the other areas in which, and tactics in which abuse might be used and justified through spiritual or religious context. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to those other tactics? Or there is there one more than any other that's more effective that you've seen that people should um, be more aware of? I think just with general tactics, using the power and control wheel, the same thing happens with religion. Each abuser finds what works for them with their particular partner and whatever they can use on their partner to control them and manipulate them, they're going to use that. So it doesn't have to be a specific tactic. And what I see is usually a pattern of multiple tactics, some that are used minimally and then some that the abuser finds are very effective in maintaining the control over the victim. I don't like to use the word victim, but at that point, they are a victim of the abuser and they're a captive. And so what the abuser is doing is finding how can they hold that person and entrap that person. And if something works, they're going to continue to use it. If it stops working, they're going to shift tactics but you can generally find a pattern of those tactics. So, you know, when you were talking about, Julie, the the faith community, you know, and also not just the faith community, but also your OBGYN, (laughs) not being able to help. So there's the medical community in addition. And both of you have talked about the ways in which family court has has been institutionally um, dangerous for women, not just you know, women of faith, but all women. <laughs> so in terms of what what role faith leaders and faith communities can have, both of you have worked pretty extensively in building interfaith alliances. What has been the biggest impediment for you, Deborah, in building those coalitions? Um, once you've identified that there's a partner that's interested, what kinds of biases still exist that you're struggling with? Well, probably the first thing that we that I run into is I have the wrong genitals. Let's just be clear here. So very often what I'll do is I'll work with Jim Upchurch, who is a pastor who's part of Call to Peace Ministries, and Jim and I will go in together and speak to a pastor. So I come in and I'm doing the educational piece, and Jim is letting the the pastor know that biblically, this is the right direction to be going. To go in there as a woman, even to another female who is a pastor, is still seen as, you don't know what you're talking about, either because I'm not of their faith directly, or because I don't understand how their church works. And so many churches get it so wrong that I think the biggest detriment that we find is women, even if they're not excommunicated from the church, although many women are when they bring domestic abuse up in the church, uh, they leave their churches. 
And some of them will find other churches that are more supportive. Many women leave religion altogether. And they leave religion because religion has betrayed them by supporting the abuser. So, you know, when you mentioned um, that you use the phrase, you, you have the wrong genitals, I'm sure you don't believe that, but they believe it. So yeah. I, I'd like to suggest that we reframe it and that they have the wrong mindset. <laughs> well, they, they definitely right? but don't do. put it on us that they're, they have this bias. When you are coming to solve a problem for them, I would want expect that they should be open-minded. It's like in any problem, any business problem, if I had, you know, something I needed to, to fix, I'm not going to complain about the mechanic if I need to fix my car, you know, the gender of the mechanic. But anyway, so, so I think that, that that's something I'd like to dig in a little bit more, this, this basically the gendered aspects of religion, right? And even when there is a problem, when they want to seek help, there's still stereotypes around who should be delivering it, who has authority, who has expertise. Have you ever? And if you if you haven't, you know, why not address that directly? Why not bring it up, call attention to the elephant in the room, Deborah, and say, you know, maybe these, I, I noticed blah, blah, blah. Maybe these kinds of behaviors and perspectives, opinions may inhibit you from you know, serving your ministry properly, effectively. So Terry, one of the things I've found over the years in working with people who are resistive is if I go in that direct, they're going to throw me out. So what I do is I come in with a much gentler approach and I suggest that they might want to look at some of the other work that's being done by leaders in the religious or spiritual communities and get an understanding that this is a problem of every socioeconomic level, every culture, every racial background, every religious background. No one is exempt. And so part of what we want to do is we want to bring this as this is a, a communal issue across the board. And when pastors start to recognize it or religious leaders start to recognize it in their congregations, sometimes they want to go at it very quickly with a little bit of knowledge. And a little bit of knowledge can be even more dangerous than no knowledge whatsoever. So one of the things that we want to do is we want to reach out and keep educating them. And some of the advocates that we're doing training with, that's their focus. They want to advocate within their own religious or spiritual community and educate there rather than working one-on-one with individuals because for many of them, that's too triggering. So there are other avenues that they can use to educate. And we do, we do have to make that so what, an important part of our platform. So when you say that sometimes... A little knowledge is more dangerous than no knowledge. Can you give some examples of how that's been harmful? So a pastor goes and and they listen to certain videos that are out there now by their church or their, I don't know, Julie, you might have to help me with this wording here, but the like IBCD, that's like a body that's over a number of different church groups. 
Well, every denomination has their own, you know, body that oversees you. So in the church, it's it's called the, the synod, you know, but there's different in the Presbyterian church. I'm sorry. But a lot of those, they've all got different names, but they don't have policies or protocols. It's very haphazard in terms of how do you handle domestic violence? Most of them don't have anything at all. So what I've seen is some of the pastors will, will they'll go and they'll listen to maybe three or four of these videos that have been put together and they think, oh, well, now I understand what's going on. And they jump right in and they're going to fix this marriage. They're going to fix him. So he stops abusing and they're going to teach her how to be a better wife to him. Sorry, I have to interrupt, Deborah. So how does that how is that a misinterpretation of any information that you could possibly share? Because that already implies that there's victim blaming if she needs to make any kind of change. So I'm sure you're not sharing that information. So how how is it possible one takes that information and then be, you know misinterprets it? How, well, how do pastors do that? First of all, they run it through their own filter, and their own filter says. We've got to do everything we can to keep this marriage together. And instead of focusing on holding him accountable for his behaviors and supporting her emotionally to heal from the experience of coercive control, what they do is they want to get in there and fix both of them. But I'm guessing that none of this is in your training, though, right? Like, you know, so... How do you then hold these trainees accountable for properly interpreting the information that you're sharing? Our trainees get very invested in what they're learning and they're applying it to their situation. Many of the trainees that we're working with are survivors and they've shared with us multiple bad experiences with their own churches. And what they want to do is they want to help their churches do a better job. So they're they're learning not only from a secular perspective, but Joy brings in the biblical perspective, and she helps them interpret the scriptures correctly so that they can go and talk with their pastors and teach their pastors from both sides. So Julie, when you've had this experience, um, having you did a great job earlier just now, sort of giving us a brief lesson in how different passages have been misinterpreted. And when people like the trainees that Deborah has worked with go to their pastors and say, well, you know, I attended Deborah or Julie's workshop, and this is what they said about this passage. How is that usually received by the pastors? I can't imagine it's positive experience. It really depends. Uh, if they're asking for uh, training and information, my experience has been quite often they're very grateful. The thing is that uh, so many, it's just like, <laughs> is an abuser going to change, right? <laughs> do they want to go? Do they want? Do they want to go somewhere and talk about how they've been wrong all along? Well, you know, pastors don't want to do that either. And so, as Deborah said, the approach is very critical. So if you go in and you immediately attack them and uh, tell them that they've been wrong all along, you're not going to meet your goals. You're not going to, you're just going to alienate them. So there's a very fine line. And, you know, I, I have to tell you, I've sort of gone back and forth across that line for 
for decades. I've, I, I've spent many years trying not to piss anybody off, you know, not to offend anybody. The older I get, the more I, you know, have come to this place like we all, all old women do where we're just like, I'm going to speak the truth in love. And, you know, it's either going to fall on with the seeds I plant will either fall in fertile soil or concrete. I don't have any power about that, but I have to speak the truth. And so I have vacillated back and forth. Joy and I have talked about this a lot because she's she is right there in with conservative denominations and pastors and seminaries. And if she talked the way I talk, she'd be kicked out. So, you know, we all there's a place for all of us who are doing this work and different people will hear different people depending on what kind of ears they have on. But my, I have had pastors who have actually humbled themselves, who've come to trainings I've done and came to me later and said, I was so wrong. I was so wrong. I've had Christian counselors who have broke down sobbing, saying, I've been counseling. I, I've been a part of the problem. I've been counseling battered women and their husbands, you know, help me. So I've been asked to come in and talk and train the elders of a church, for example, where they really screwed up and hurt this woman okay. and made her life so much harder. And what they did is they made amends to her and they started helping her in uh, meaningful, concrete ways to try to make up for the harm they had done. Now, to me, that's what Jesus would do, right? That's where we're supposed to be coming from. As Christians, our role model is Jesus Christ. And the only people that he went off on were religious people because being religious is no good. That's the problem. But if you if you have the love of God in you and you see everyone as your equal and as worthy, then the way that you approach them is going to be from a place of love. And you, you're much more likely to be able to get your message across that way. So I've done many big conferences and trainings over the years with lots of pastors, faith leaders, and the response almost for those who come is always pretty remarkable. They are thrilled to have the information. They are made uncomfortable to some degree because they have to rethink some things. I don't know what they go home and do with it always. But I know that many of them that I talk to, it has changed how they do what they do because they have started to look at what's really important, which is the character of Jesus, the, the red words in the Bible, as we say. Those, that's if, uh, Terry, for you, if you haven't read the Bible, a lot of Bibles, the, the words in red are what Jesus said. And those, it's really important because all the other stuff, you know, you can learn a lot and it's some great stuff, but it's not what Jesus said. And, you know, so you, you can just get base, get, get rid of a lot of stuff and just get real basic. Then you can, sometimes the more you learn, the, the worse witness you are, <laughs> the, you know, the, the less you, re, you represent Christ. David, you shared, Julie, a lot of ideas just now with regard to, you know, the proper interpretation of the Bible and scripture yeah. is coming from a place of love and mm -hmm. worthiness, which implies that there's the sense that everybody is equal. And yet in this country, their Christianity has in its 
in its history, uh, the roots of white supremacy. So I want to talk about that with you, Deborah, a little bit in terms of the the intersection of white supremacy and racism and poverty. Not every well, again, this is from an outsider's perspective, you know, not every church, at least not publicly, especially the evangelical right now, um, you, you have these visions of megachurches. And when the hurricanes happen, you know, all these megachurches were closed <laughs> in the South and not open to their parishioners or to even, you know, hurricane victims. So this concept of, you know, sort of uh, hoarding wealth for the purposes of hoarding wealth of those who are at the top, you know, doesn't seem to meld very, you know, well with the love and quality message that Julie's been talking about. So how how do you reconcile as someone who's doing this work, Deborah, when you're meeting people, you know, who may be coming to you for assistance? You know, this is kind of going back to the question again, and they may genuinely want assistance because these abuse is a problem and its corollary effects on community is a problem, but they don't really have the sort of mindset that's open to want to change and reflect on what they're doing that may contribute to it. So what when we have someone with a very narrow view that ha- is very closed it can be very difficult to open their eyes to what's going on. And one of the things that I like to do, and I used to do when I did the Better Intervention Program, is I would try to open up the eyes of the abusers that were in the group to what they were doing. And one of the things I would say to them is, if someone was doing to your daughter what you have done to your wife, how would you feel about that? So I would take it out of their relationship and move it to their children because in looking at it through the eyes of the impact on their children, sometimes they can actually get the message that they're harming their children and they're harming their wife. And if if your daughter, I would say things like, if your daughter was getting ready to get married to someone and he was demeaning her and he was isolating her from you. How would you feel about that with your daughter being removed from your life by this person? And getting their attention with something that they can relate to. Because if I come in there as we did early on in in the feminist movement where we were really trying to be very much in people's faces and confrontational, what we ended up was a lot of backlash. And that backlash was because of our approach. Well, you know, I have to challenge you a little bit on that, Deborah, because, I mean, this approach of uh, this uh, tactic, I guess I should say, of, and it's come up a lot, you know, in the media these days that, oh, think about your mother or your wife or your daughter or your sister, you know, and then you have all these like corrections where like, you you know, a woman should be valued because she's a woman you know, because of our humanity. Why do you have to have any relationship to a woman to understand the concept of equality or respect <laughs> or consent, you know? And so I guess my my question is, why is that considered controversial to hold someone accountable to their own beliefs? Well, 
sometimes their beliefs are twisted. Sometimes their beliefs are destructive. So what we have to do is we have to help them look at it from a different point of view. And we talk about abusers have a lot of distorted thinking. They have created their own reality to justify what they're doing. Not that that's true reality. It's what they're saying in order to justify their own behaviors. So we have to confront that and we have to find ways to confront it that they can hear. So one of the, the things that's come up, you know, since George Floyd in March and, and the, the uh, pandemic is this hopefully greater awareness, I think, collectively as a culture that we have around, you know, why Black Lives Matter and understanding that racism is not just pervasive, but it's an endemic part of our American identity, right, <laughs> of colonialism and all, all of that. And there have been lots of institutions who are in the nonprofits, mainly in the nonprofit social justice space, and to some extent um, in the private sector as well, who are pledging their commitment to inclusivity and teaching anti-racism principles and implementing anti-racism policies. To what extent, Deborah, do you think this needs to be also directly integrated into the work that you're doing with regard to domestic violence trainings with the faith community, you know, so that it's intersectional. So we do talk about individuals from multiple communities. Our advocacy program has people of multiple colors in the program. So we're not exclusively white. I can tell you that we're not exclusively Christian. And what we're there to do is to provide information that will help straighten out the twisted thinking, the distorted thinking, and to help people understand the dynamics of coercive control. And, you know, as we're, we're moving ahead and working on legislation across the country on coercive control, one of the things that we have to be very cautious about is how we language the words that we want to have in statutes. So the statutes are actually inclusive. And as I'm doing reading prep for that, it's very important as I see certain things that have been mistakes in other countries in their languaging that we need to be aware of. I, I look at what New York did in trying to bring coercive control into their statutes. And to me, that's a minimization of what they did because they focus strictly on financial abuse. Well, and hopefully that's not, that's not the, that's just the beginning and yeah. we're going to update it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, and having been down the road of helping to formulate bills for statutes, I know how delicate that can be because you have to get the right people to see that. And so one of the things that we have to do as we're working with people is we have to listen to the language that they're using and help them reword their language so that it brings in that inclusivity. So when you refer to you, are you, are you talking about gender or because this is you know more, I was asking about race and being inclusive with regard to 
um, being anti-racist. So how, how, what do you mean exactly? I think I, I'm meaning race because we know that there are more African-American women that die from mm -hmm. domestic violence than white women. We have to look at uh, cultural background as well, immigration background as well, all of those pieces. And as far as I'm concerned, when I have a man that comes to me and says, I'm a victim of coercive control, I want him to describe exactly how he was coercively controlled versus a woman. Because when I talk to women, there's certain factors that come out in their conversation that I don't hear from men. Now, and I know Julie and I kind of fuss about this, but occasionally there might be a man who has been controlled by a woman, but it's very, very seldom because it's, we're set up through the churches, through our societal norms, that men have greater power than women. So, Julie, when you know when you were going through your relationship and looking for assistance um, and not getting it through your church, what kind of uh, reflection did did you undergo to question whether or not you know your faith, uh, what role faith had in your life, and how has your relationship with your spirituality and your faith community evolved over the years um, as you've become more aware? and developed consciousness about abuse and sexism and, and feminism? Well, you know, I feel like I was kind of a late bloomer in a way, because like I said, I was 32 when this happened. I went back and I had a baby. He was eight months old when I filed for divorce and all that violence happened. And I started my process going through all the courts and everything. And um, when I went back to school, I, I wanted to finish I wanted to get a degree and focus on violence against women. And so I had to create my own directed research, directed studies and stuff. And they let me do this. And uh, I, what happened is that I had a great, uh, my eyes got opened. Okay. I, I was introduced to Dr. Rianne Eisler's book, The Chalice and the Blade, which I, I've just put um, the links to a webinar that we did together. And she was one of my sheroes. When I read that book, I suddenly got it about what had happened to women and how patriarchy developed and and why misogyny became the order of the day and how from prehistory, women were worshipped as goddesses, how the tables got turned on us and our, our history as powerful equals of men was literally wiped out from art and archaeology and everything purposely in order for patriarchy to be able to become the norm, which it is today. So that webinar, we talk about that. But that book really opened my eyes. And the more I read and started to understand, the more I got it, how the church had gotten it all wrong. And uh, so all of this started coming together in my head. And of course, my father was a great biblical scholar and uh, a deep thinker and a pastor. And he and my mother had an egalitarian, beautiful partnership. It was traditional in the sense that she gave up her career and stayed home and all of the things women did in the 50s. But they were unbelievable 
partners. He he passed away on Father's Day just very suddenly and unexpectedly. But I learned so much from him and he mentored me all my life. And, and he was a great egalitarian. He preached about it. He taught about it. He wrote about it. He blogged about it and about how the church has gotten it wrong and how women have been oppressed by the church. So to me, it, it it's all like one thing. And you talk about racism, uh, you know, white supremacy, all of this stuff. It's all power and control. And I got that in my early feminist teaching in my support group and from the feminist advocates that I learned from who had been in the domestic violence movement since its inception in the 70s. And I learned that, you know, hierarchy is hierarchy. And if we are going to deal with sexism, where men are up here and women are down here, then we're going to have to deal with racism where whites are up here and blacks and other Asians, minorities, Hispanic, Latinx, everybody else is down here where adults are up here and kids are down here, where uh, rich people are up here and poor people are down here. And intersectionality has to be the way we approach it because you can't preach against one oppression and ignore the other. Because it's all sinful. And if you if you look at Jesus and the way Jesus lived and the teachings of Jesus and who Jesus spent time with versus who he railed against and held to account and challenged, you'll find out that it's the religious people he was on the wrong side of. You know, it's the religious people who crucified him. And it was people who were just everyday people struggling, making mistakes, trying to do their best that, that he that he spent time with because th- these are the people who were actually trying to love their neighbors as their as themselves, you know. I don't I don't think we can separate out sexism from racism from from classism or any of the isms, you know, from the heterosexism, all of the all of it. We can't pick and choose what group we're going to say. It's all, you can't oppress this group, but it's okay to oppress the, these. So, so Deborah, you know, following up on um, what what Julie was saying, how do you approach members of the community, people who are being abused, who have a very strong allegiance to the mindset? of these norms that are very traditional that set them up basically to be blamed and um, set them up to believe that redemption is possible for everyone to want to quote unquote forgive. How do you provide them a an opening to think differently outside of the box and if they so choose still remain in a community or must they step outside that community sometimes as a way to just survive? I mean, because what I'm hearing from Julie is she's, she juxtaposes the term religious. Like you can be spiritual and you can be part of a community, but not have to be part of an institution. It's very difficult when someone has been raised from infancy in a specific religious background and they've had certain teachings and belief systems. So. Part of it is just trying to find out what it is that will create that dissonance for them that 
that break in their thoughts to think about it from a different point of view. So a lot of times I'll use my own story and talk about how what happened to me and how I ended up leaving two marriages, not even knowing that they were coercively controlling marriages, but still leaving those marriages because I was unhappy. And so taking it away from labeling it as abuse and saying, what is it that you're uncomfortable about? What is it that doesn't work for you in this marriage? And how much responsibility is that of the other person in the marriage? So we want to hold the abuser accountable. And are you asking to be treated this way? Are you asking to be isolated from your family? Are you asking to be prevented from going to work? Are you asking to be prevented from having equal say in finances? And if they're saying, no, I'm not asking for that, he's dictating that. And then I can come back and say, so how does that feel with your belief system as a woman? We'll go back to that as a woman of any race, culture, background that that is right for you. And if it's not right for you, then what do you want to do to change that? Okay. It sounds like a very difficult journey <laughs> for you as a trainer. Uh, so let's, let's turn now to the questions from the attendees. I believe that we have a couple of questions and the first one is for Julie. So I'm going to turn to Michelle to ask the question. So there's one question. So Mia in the chat asks, so Julie, earlier on, you talked in the beginning about your church not understanding your situation of abuse. And you mentioned that the pastor even made the situation worse. So what Mia is asking is if the situation is the same nowadays, is there any specific program or um, initiative in any denomination that effectively addresses the issue? Well, nowadays, there are lots of programs and organizations and initiatives that are very effectively addressing the issue. Back then, there weren't. And so, for example, uh, one of the things that I did early on was my uh, mentor, the late, great Dr. Catherine Clark Crager, who was a biblical scholar and instructor at the seminary, Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston. We co-founded an international organization, which no longer exists now, but we did international uh, conferences and uh, became the first organization that actually brought people together, actually from different countries and different states, to who were trying to work on the issue of domestic violence. There never has been a way for all of us to get together and talk and share information because we're in our own little, you know, isolated places and, and we need the support of each other and we need information from each other and ideas from each other and so forth. But since then, since those days in the 90s and so many other organizations like Restore in the UK, I'm sure Mia in Scotland's familiar with that one. There are uh, many organizations, uh, Faith Trust Institute in Seattle, Washington. I know we have somebody from Washington on here. That's Dr. Marie Fortune's Reverend Dr. Marie Fortune, who wrote the little book I told you about, Keeping the Faith. 
she was my first mentor in this and they do a lot of training. They have curriculum. Uh, I've, I, in fact, I'm on their national training team and I've done a lot of training for them. So there are a lot of opportunities now for, for churches and organizations that want to create uh, policies and procedures who want to train their leadership, who want to do things differently, who want to send a message to the women and their congregations that we believe you, we support you, we're here for you. Some of the things that, you know, there's some real easy things that, that I have found that you can do. And even when I was working in shelters and working with survivors there and doing just secular support groups, we could talk about things without it being religious per se, about what's the definition of the, what is love? Because a lot of times victims will say, you know, he loves me, but he hits me. So what is love and how do you define love? And so we talk about love as being not what you say, but what you do, how you treat someone, not a feeling, but a way of life. And one of the exercises that I've done so many times that I think is so helpful is taking one of the, uh, I think it's the most beautiful chapter in the Bible. It's my favorite, 1 Corinthians 13. And it defines love. It talks about love. And taking that one piece of scripture, whether somebody He's a Christian or not. And reading it and taking the word love out of it. Uh-oh, Julie stopped. Frozen. Okay, Julie, you're frozen. We're going to ho- hopefully she'll, she'll come back in. So, Deborah, let, let's turn to you. So we had some requests for resources. Um, so, if, I think this is a great opportunity for you to please name the books that you've written and share briefly what they're about. Okay. So... I've put the names in the chat. The one on coercive control is Eyes Wide Open, Help with Control Freak Co-Parents. And that's really to help protective parents who are coming out of abusive relationships know what to do. There's a lot of checklists, some journaling focus points in there. So it really helps you move through and identify the different tactics of the abuser. There's a book for your children. It's called Through a Child's Voice, and it actually allows children to journal about what's happened to them and how that's impacted them. And then the book that I just republished is From Darkness to Light, Your Inner Journey. And that book is a workbook that I actually developed a program for adults who came out of dysfunctional families. And we started working with survivors of domestic abuse using that book. And that we found that that's been very helpful for them as well. So that one has just gone live on Amazon. They're all available there. And I'm going to give another plug for our advocacy training program. We will be starting our classes again in January. We run 12 classes through the year. And so there's 48 weeks that we're training people People don't just get like a, a seven-hour workshop and we turn them loose, Terry. We work with them for a full year. And then people who have gone through the full, full 12 courses, they want to repeat again. They can do that for free. So we offer them that. And the, the, just to clarify, so the workshops are for anybody who wants to become a trainee so that they could go back to their faith communities and be an advocate for survivors. They can be an advocate for survivors. They can be an educator within their community. They can be an advocate within their community. There are many jobs 
in the community secular jobs for advocates as well. So I'm going to put that up. Great, um, thank you. There's a um, link right now in the chat where you can go and find out more information. I'm just gonna add my own few resources because okay. <laughs> I, as, as again, as a non-Christian, I follow um, people on Facebook who are leaders of what's called the religious left. Uh, and one of them is, I'm sure you are familiar. I, I, I hope his, his name is okay. John Pavlovitz. <laughs> I really like what he writes and he's very vocal and he's talks a lot about the sexism and misogyny uh, in culture. And he's also not apolitical um, because he calls out the, um, the misbehavior on the, on the religious right. And then on Locally, I'm in New York. Uh, Rabbi Rachel Timiner has has been a very inspirational faith leader. I met her and attended some of her ceremonies that she's led and been very inspired by her. And she has her own website as well. So with that, I guess I, ho I hope Julie's going to come back to say goodbye. <laughs> but I, I want to turn back to you, Deborah, to give some closing words. Um, if the, anybody who's on this call, if anybody's in, who's in this call, you know, is seeking help from their community, uh, faith communities, their pastors, their religious leaders, and not getting it, what would you suggest that they do, Deborah? Um, I would suggest that they reach out and they can contact me. They can contact Call to Peace Ministries which is located in North Carolina, but we are, we work internationally. We actually have people from Ireland and the UK and Australia who've been in our courses and are available to work with people. So our focus is being there. It doesn't matter what your background is. You don't even have to be, have a religious background to be involved to really get some help. And we have people now that are ready and willing to offer that support and walk alongside. Thank you, Deborah. So, so Julie, welcome back. Uh, we are doing our closing final words. And to you, I would ask that you give some, you know, suggestions to anybody who's listening, who works in the faith community, you know, who's a religious leader and what you would suggest to them to be better okay. able to serve uh, their community and be a source of healing and support? First of all, I would say do everything you can to get yourself educated about domestic violence and coercive control, uh, what it is and what it isn't, because it's a very complex issue. And then learn uh, ways to do no harm and try not to be the experts, but work with the secular experts. I think one of the things the church has not done well is to try to do everything itself and to not work with the secular experts. And that's a big mistake because we're talking about a life and death matter. And when it comes to safety planning and legal concerns and many different things, the people, people in the church leadership don't know how to help and they can make things worse very quickly. And so that's the most important thing. And, and to be accountable to those people who are the ones with the expertise in the community and work with them and form partnerships with them. Have them come in and do training for you. Uh, go and uh, take meals to the shelters. Form relationships. It's all about relationships. 
and get to know each other. I think there's been a historical, actually, I wrote a book chapter about this, a disconnect between the church and the secular domestic violence arena. There's been mistrust on both sides. And we all want the same thing. We want safety for women and children. We want domestic violence to stop. We want people to be safe. So, you know, we should be able to work together. I I don't know what point I got cut off, but I was getting ready to talk about what one of the things that I think helps me, and this is kind of a good way to end it, I think, is. 1 Corinthians 13, which gives us a definition of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy, doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's just one translation. But if you take out the word love and you put in the name of a person, a partner, for example, or even a church, then you need to ask yourself, does it ring true? And and we'll know we're doing the right thing when it rings true, because that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be operating out of love. And if we're not, then we know something's wrong, whether that's a member of the congregation, whether that's the pastor, whether that's us, or whether that's the denomination or the congregate, you know, we have, a, we have a long way to go, but uh, those who want information and training can get it. It's out there now, thankfully. Well, thank you to both panelists. It's been a delight having you in this conversation. Thank you to Michelle for helping to moderate the chat and the Q&A. In closing, I just wanted to say to the attendees, thank you for attending. This is the final conversation that we're having for Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but let, let's not make this the final opportunity that you have in learning about this issue. Uh, Please follow us on social media, listen and download the podcast, and really get the book, Just Hill's book, see what you made me do. (laughs) Um, And if you'd like to join the Engendered Collective community, go to engenderedcollective.org. Have a good afternoon, everyone, and hopefully we'll see you online very soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.